Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, July 27th, we discuss, is the EEOC misusing the Freedom of Information Act to penalize employers that adopt mandatory employment arbitration programs? My name is Guy DeSanctis, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Christopher C. Murray, shareholder, Ogletree Deacons, Nash, Smoke, and Stewart. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Chris, the floor is yours. Thank you, Guy, and uh, good afternoon to everyone, or good morning to those of you who are in the West. Uh, thank you for joining us for today's Federal Society Teleforum, and we are delighted to have as our panelists today EEOC Commissioner Janet Dillon and former EEOC General Counsel Eric Dryband. Uh, before her government service, Commissioner Dillon practiced law in the private sector for over 25 years. She began her legal career at Skadden Arps, where she practiced for 13 years, and she has held a number of roles with a variety of leading companies, including serving as general counsel for U.S. Airways, for J.C. Penney Company, and for Burlington Stores Incorporated. Commissioner Dillon was first nominated to the EEOC by the president in June of 2017 and confirmed on May 8, 2019. She was sworn in as chair of the EEOC on May 15, 2019, and her term as chair ended on January 20th, 2021. During her tenure as chair of the EEOC, Commissioner Dillon implemented a series of reforms to increase the transparency of the commission's activities. For example, she instituted the practice of posting the commission's votes on the EEOC's public website. And in addition, during her time as chair, the commission enacted regulations designed to improve the operation of the commission including increasing transparency and effectiveness in the EEOC's conciliation process. She also led the commission's efforts to repeal outdated guidance and technical assistance publications and instituted two pilot programs to test changes to the commission's alternative dispute resolution process and its conciliation program. Eric Dryband also has an extensive, has extensive experience both in the private sector and in public service. Following law school, Eric served as a federal prosecutor in the Office of Independent Counsel and then worked at the Chicago law firm of Mayor Brown Rowan Mall, where he litigated labor employment and other cases. He is presently a partner at Jones Day, where he represents clients in investigations, litigation, and counseling, and civil rights, employment discrimination, and other matters. In his public service, Eric served as general counsel of the EEOC from 2003 to 2005. In that capacity, he directed the EEOC's litigation of federal employment discrimination laws and managed approximately 300 attorneys in a national docket, litigation docket of approximately 500 cases. More recently, from 2018 to 2021, Eric served as Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. Under his leadership, the Civil Rights Division set several enforcement records, expanded resources for human trafficking prosecutions, and prosecuted illegal discrimination in education, employment, housing, and lending. As Guy mentioned, my name is Chris Murray, and I'm a shareholder at Ogletree Deacons. 
There, I chair the firm's arbitration and ADR practice group, and it's my pleasure to moderate our discussion today. I also wanted to note at the outset that we did extend an invitation to the EEOC's current Office of Legal Counsel to have someone join our panel discussion today, and they declined the invitation. I wanted to start by providing some background for our discussion. Late last year, one of my colleagues circulated an email at our firm. He explained that the local office of the EEOC in his jurisdiction was routinely denying FOIA requests for the underlying charge file when the resulting matter was pending in arbitration as opposed to a court following issuance of a right to sue letter. My colleague further stated that lawyers from several firms in his jurisdiction had raised this issue with the local EEOC regional attorney and district director. They made some inquiries and reported back to the lawyers that this was in fact the EEOC's national policy on this matter. Namely, if a matter is filed in arbitration following issuance of a right to sue to a charging party, EEOC does not consider arbitration to be a proceeding on the charge within the meaning of Title VII and therefore EEOC will not disclose the charge file in response to a FOIA request. My colleague asked if others within our firm had encountered this national policy. Based on several internal inquiries within our firm, we learned that other colleagues in multiple jurisdictions are similarly seeing their FOIA requests denied, but on the ground that a case is proceeding in arbitration rather than court. We have not seen this policy in writing in EEOC publications, in fact, the only place we've seen it referenced in writing are in the FOIA denial letters. This raises a host of questions. Where does this policy come from? What is the EEOC's basis for treating litigation and arbitration differently in responding to FOIA requests? How long has the EEOC been making this distinction? And should employers challenge the EEOC's FOIA practices? And if so, how? Eric, I'd, I'd like to turn to you first. Uh, you practiced labor and employment law going back to the 1990s and were at the EEOC in the early 2000s. Historically, what has been the EEOC's position on employment arbitration? Uh, Eric, I think you are, your microphone may be off. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Chris. Um, first of all, let me add, it's, it's a real um, privilege and pleasure to appear today with uh, Chris Murray, Chris and I worked together many years ago in Chicago, and of course, it's an honor to be here with Commissioner Dillon as well. Um, the EEOC uh, has taken a position for a very long time, back until at least the 1970s, that arbitration uh, of uh, civil rights employment discrimination claims as a general matter is inconsistent with the statutes that the EEOC enforces. Uh, the lead Supreme Court case on this for the EEOC's point of view is a case called Alexander versus Gardner Denver Company, which is a 1974 Supreme Court case that said essentially that a collective bargaining agreement did not foreclose a Title VII uh, federal court cause of action. In 1991, however, the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, in a decision called Gilmer versus Interstate Johnson Land Corporation, determined that a, uh, a pre-dispute arbitration agreement could uh, be arbitrated and, and essentially could, could deny an individual a right to go to federal court. Uh, that decision was consistent with a, a separate law not enforced by the EEOC called the Federal Arbitration Act. And the Federal Arbitration Act, as a general matter, establishes a federal policy that favors arbitration. And so in the Gilmer case, uh, the Supreme Court determined uh, that that the Federal Arbitration Act was wholly consistent with essentially 
an employee and an employer agreeing to arbitrate an employment discrimination lawsuit rather than go take the case into federal district court. Um, in later in 1991, in the Civil Rights Act of 1991, in Section 118 of that act, uh, the Congress and President then George H.W. Bush uh, encouraged arbitration and other forms of alternative dispute resolution as a mechanism to resolve uh, employment discrimination claims in, uh, without going to court. Nevertheless, in 1997, the commission adopted a policy statement in which the, the commission said that pre-dispute arbitration of employment discrimination lawsuits is inconsistent with every statute that the EEOC enforces. Um, the, the, the policy statement did acknowledge that the Supreme Court had a different point of view on this question um, and said that, well, they, court, the, the commission recognized the Supreme Court has held otherwise, but the, essentially saying not explicitly, but implicitly, the Supreme Court is wrong and the EEOC doesn't agree with the Supreme Court. I then arrived at the EEOC in 2003, as Chris said, as the general counsel, and uh, frankly, I was unaware of this anti-arbitration perspective until I arrived at the EEOC um, and found it, uh, the policy statement from 1997 to be lawless because it was inconsistent with the Supreme Court's decision in the Gilmer case. And so I unsuccessfully tried to persuade the commissioners to repeal that statement, uh, that policy statement, and bring the statement uh, more in line with what the Supreme Court said the law is. Uh, but I was not successful in doing that. Um, I would add real quickly that since my tenure there, um, uh, the, the Supreme Court has continued to uh, endorse a federal policy of arbitration, and the rank and file of the EOC continue to disagree with the Supreme Court as far as I know and have seen. But, um, but, but that, Chris, I'll turn it back to you. Great. Thank, thank you. And, uh, Commissioner Dillon, has, uh, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Um, uh, has that uh, has that position changed in the interim? Uh, by the time you arrived at the EEOC in 2019, or since you're uh, joining uh, the commission? Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I want to state at the outset that the opinions I express here today are my own, uh, and they shouldn't be construed to reflect the views of the commission as a whole or any of my other fellow commissioners. Um, so when I arrived at the commission in 2019, that 1997 policy statement that Eric was alluding to was still in place. Um, and as part of an effort um, that I undertook, actually built upon some work uh, that had been done by my predecessor, acting chair Vicki Lipnick, uh, we embarked on a review of um, the materials that the commission had issued over the years to identify things that might be outdated um, misleading in light of subsequent developments in the law, um, subsequent statutory enactments, um, with the goal of taking things down from our website and rescinding things that reflected um, outdated, you know, outdated principles and ran a real risk of misleading the public. Um, and my view was that the 1997 um, policy statement fell into that category. Um, in fact, when we really looked into it, um, we, we counted up at least seven Supreme Court decisions um, addressing various aspects of arbitration in the labor and employment context that had been issued since 1997, and of course were not reflected in the document, and an additional at least 13 decisions that the Supreme Court had issued um, involving arbitration and the Federal Arbitration Act in other contexts. And it, of course, this 1997 document didn't reflect any of those decisions as well. 
Um, so I put this document up um, for a vote of the commission to rescind it. Um, and that vote um, was successful. And so the document was rescinded um, in December of 2019. Um, so I guess, a, you know, a fundamental question here at the, in the background of this, this uh, teleform is, does the EEOC have a formal national policy prohibiting the release of charge files to respondents when a matter is pending in arbitration. Um, Eric, were you aware of any such policy during your time at the commission? No, uh, I, I wasn't aware of any such policy until probably last year, 2021. And, and, and Commissioner Dillon, uh, I guess, what would be, what's the current status of this, this apparent national policy, uh, to your knowledge? Well, um, I, will, I will start off by saying I wasn't aware of this practice either until I think late last year. Um, I, I wish I had been aware of it earlier, but but I was not. Um, I uh, to quibble a bit. I don't think this is a policy of the commission because a policy um, in most instances like this would require a vote of the commission. And in fact, um, the procedural requirements for FOIA requests and the like are laid out in the agency's regulations, which are voted on by the commission. So I think any um, change to those regulations would require a vote of the commission and um, that kind of vote has not taken place. And um, so where would this, where does this practice originate? If, uh, is it with the, 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 the staff uh, in the front line or where, where does this come from? Uh, I, I don't know um, where it comes from. You know, it's come to my attention that um, that FOIA requests are being denied um, on the base on this basis. But I I honestly don't know where it's coming from because again, it is not something that is reflected in our regulations. Oh, uh, Eric, what uh, what's your understanding of what the the rationale is that's being offered for these FOIA denials uh, by the EEOC? Yeah, I, I think yeah. So the, let me explain first how how the commission's enforcement mechanisms work uh, by statute, and then which explains why the commission uh, takes position it does. So the EEOC, unlike other enforcement, law enforcement agencies has authority to investigate charges of discrimination. Without a charge, it can't investigate anything. Um, once it receives a charge, it's required by statute under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to conduct an investigation, it has very, very broad subpoena power to compel production of information, testimony, all kinds of things. When it finishes its investigation, the EEOC then issues a, a determination of some kind, either dismissing the charge or finding a violation or finding reasonable cause to believe a violation occurred. And then there are other steps it can take to try to settle a dispute short of litigation. The commission uh, is, is, with respect to this, is prohibited by statute from making public um, any information that it, require, that it acquires during an investigation prior to the institution of any proceeding under Title VII. And in addition, that provision, this prohibition about making information public, that extends to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is race, sex, color, religion, 
uh, and national origin discrimination, but also to the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. So that's the statute that governs and limits the EOC's authority to make anything public that it obtains during investigations. The Supreme Court has interpreted the public for these purposes not to include uh, the parties to the charge. So it, the, the person who filed the charge and the, and the respondent to the charge, typically an employer, are not part of the public for purposes of Title VII. And so what this means is that the requirement on, in Title VII that the EOC cannot make information it obtains during an investigation public does not extend to the employer or the person who filed the charge or a union if a union is a party to the charge or any other party to the charge. It, it, uh, and, and so, but under the Freedom of Information Act then, the Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act requires the EEOC to produce its investigative files unless the law prevents it from doing so. So the, what the commission says is, well, we're not permitted to make any information from our charge file public prior to the institution of a proceeding under Title VII. Therefore, and they interpret proceeding to mean a federal court lawsuit because another provision of Title VII uh, refers to both the EEOC itself and private aggrieved individuals of having uh, the authority to bring a federal court lawsuit um, under Title VII and the other statutes that incorporate Title VII, like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Genetic Enforcement Non-Discrimination Act. So the upshot of this is that the EEOC says, well, a proceeding under this subchapter um, is a federal court lawsuit. And, and unless you bring a federal court lawsuit, you can't we can't make we can't make it available to you. That's the gist of the EEOC's position on this. And, and how does uh, how does the EEOC uh, overrule the Supreme Court on determining uh, <laughs> whether the parties to the charge are the public? Um, that's a very good question, Chris. Uh, I wish I could answer that. So let me let me back up. So the, the relevant Supreme Court case here is a case called EEOC versus Associated Dry Goods. And it's a 1981 Supreme Court decision in which it says, uh, as I mentioned, that the public it does not, um, I'll read it, the, the public to whom the statute forbids disclosure of charges cannot logically include parties to the agency proceeding. Okay, that's the relevant language. And, and that extends to the provision about information obtained during an investigation. I don't know how or the EOC squares the associated dry goods decision with its position. Um, it, it, its position, uh, other than to say that um, the, the statute limits proceedings under the subchapter uh, to federal court cases not, and does not include arbitration. Uh, and so the commission simply uh, has, to my knowledge, has never addressed publicly, at least, either the, the existence of this policy uh, about withholding information if the matter is pending in arbitration, nor has the EEOC ever explained how it uh, squares the associated dry goods opinion with the Freedom of Information Act. Um, but so it's very difficult to do that. There is an EEOC regulation that says that um, the, the requesting party should submit a copy of the, the court complaint, um, but, but that one is really um, 
doesn't really rely on anything in the statute. And so it's at least arguable that the EOC interprets its own regulation that way, um, that, that, that its own regulation requires that a matter be filed in court. Uh, but it, I'm not aware of any public defense uh, or even explanation for the policy. Okay. Uh, Commissioner Dillon, on the, on the second rationale that Eric mentioned there, the reference to the um, regulation that requires attachment of a complaint, um, do, do you know how long that regulation has been in place or where that came from? So that, uh, that regulation and that language was enacted about 10 years ago, and it was part of the procedural regulations required to explain to the public how to go about submitting a FOIA request to the EEOC. Um, and notably, and I went back and I looked at the notice of proposed rulemaking, um, and notably the way the EEOC described the particular provision that Eric alluded to, which is this reference to respondents being required to provide a file stamped copy of a complaint um, when they submit a FOIA request, the EEOC explained in its rulemaking um, that the, the purpose of this requirement um, was to obtain required in identification of the submission as a FOIA request and other content required for efficient processing. And of course, if you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, the EEOC receives um, thousands of FOIA requests um, and Section 83 requests every year. And just the administrative process um, involved in processing those in a timely way, what the EEOC, I think, was saying in this regulation was, um, you need to give us identifying information so that we can easily locate that charge file to produce it. Um, notably, neither in the notice of proposed rulemaking or in the final rule did the EEOC ever say, and oh, by the way, we're going to interpret this provision requiring a file stamped copy of a complaint as a means of um, denying FOIA requests to respondents who are in the process of litigating an employment dispute in an arbitration forum. And of course they couldn't say that because you know, the EEOC's procedural regulatory authority can't trump um, the language of FOIA, which is the statute or the Federal Arbitration Act, which is the statute. Uh, Mr. Dillon, another question, this is a little bit of on a slightly different topic, but my understanding is that Attorney General Garland has issued a directive uh, regarding FOIA and, and uh, transparency. I'm just wondering if how the EEOC uh, has uh, interpreted that and whether that has changed any of its stance on these FOIA requests uh, where arbitration is involved. That's a very good question. So um, in March of 2022, Attorney General Garland um, issued a memorandum, um, the title of which was Freedom of Information Act Guidelines, and it was addressed to um, all heads of executive departments and agencies. So that includes the EEOC. And there are a couple provisions in it that I think are particularly noteworthy. Um, first of all, under the heading, the presumption of openness, um, the Attorney General wrote, Information that might technically fall within an exemption should not be withheld from a FOIA requester unless the agency can identify a foreseeable harm or legal bar to disclosure. In case of doubt, 
openness should prevail. Moreover, agencies are strongly encouraged to make discretionary disclosures of information where appropriate. So what the situation, as Eric has described it and as you have described it, um, I, I question whether it is consistent with that directive in the Attorney General's memorandum. Um, and then the Attorney General goes on to note that the burden is on the agency to sustain a decision to withhold information from a FOIA requester. And then he writes, um, in determining whether to defend an agency's non-disclosure decision, the Justice Department will apply the presumption of openness described above. The Justice Department will not defend non-disclosure decisions that are inconsistent with FOIA or with these guidelines. So what the Justice Department is saying, and as Eric knows from his days at DOJ, it's, a, it's the Justice Department that defends the agencies in many actions uh, in federal court. And what the Attorney General, I think, is saying here in a very polite way is you follow these guidelines or you can't have the use of my lawyers. Um, I, I encourage people to look at this document because I think it's very helpful both in this context and other contexts. Um, you can find it on the Department of Justice's website. You can't find it on the EEOC's website, interestingly enough. Um, I was looking actually for it this morning, and um, we have a memorandum from Attorney General Eric Holder from 2009 that's on our website, but um, you cannot locate this document there. So uh, you have to go to the Department of Justice website to, to get a copy. Uh, Eric, you've, you've described the rationales that have been offered by the agency in defense of these FOIA denials. Um, I'm curious what, uh, you know, what your, your thoughts are on the viability of those rationales. Should they be challenged? Um, and, what, and, and also, I guess, kind of a broader question, and that is, is there anything else going on here? Are those are the stated rationales? Do you, do you believe there are any unstated rationales or purposes behind this practice of denying these uh, FOIA requests where arbitration is involved? Uh, Chris, I'll start with your last question first um, the, on the unstated rationale. The, the, there is a widespread view, um, at least there was when I was at the agency. Now, that's a long time ago, but it, I, as far as I know, it has not changed. Um, that pre-dispute and uh, arbitration agreements are essentially a nefarious uh, plot by employers to deprive victims of discrimination of access to federal courts. So by way of example, when I was at the EEOC and, and first learning about this controversy, one attorney told me that arbitration of employment discrimination cases is the modern day equivalent of the 1857 decision by the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case when the Supreme Court told Dred Scott that uh, he would he did not have access to the federal courts. Uh, so there is, I think, a, an undercurrent of something akin to arbitration agreements deprive victims of access to federal courts in the same way that Chief Justice Taney's opinion in the Dred Scott case did to Dred Scott. Now, that's a bit hyperbolic, and I'm not saying that everybody at the EOC shares that view, but there is a general view that arbitration is is a corrupt forum because employers pay the arbitrators typically because it's private and not public because uh, it, it, people are coerced into doing it through pre-dispute agreements that there there's adhesion contracts where the employer 
um, has much greater bargaining power than employees do, that they're forced on employees. Um, and, and therefore, there's something nefarious and corrupt about them as a general matter. Uh, and, and so that's the kind of general uh, view, I think, that many, many people at the commission have about our pre-dispute arbitration rooms in general. Now, to your question about whether, in my view, the commission's position is viable and whether or not if litigated, for example, if challenged, the, the EEOC would prevail, um, my view is that the commission's position is not viable. I think it's completely unlawful. I don't even think it's a close question. Uh, and I don't think that even the Justice Department would think it's a close question either. Uh, I think if for the reasons Commissioner Dillon said, I think if and when someone challenges the commission's position, I do not believe the Justice Department will even defend it in court. I think what will happen will be that if somebody challenges it, that challenges the EOC's denial uh, of a FOIA request because a matter is pending in arbitration and files a lawsuit under the Freedom of Information Act to compel production, which is the procedural mechanism to do so, the Justice Department will it will be the entity that's uh, assigned to defend the EEOC. It will look at the case and it will tell the EEOC that they have an indefensible position and will immediately settle with whoever the requester is that brought the lawsuit. And, and let me add too, the EEOC has litigation authority uh, to file Title VII and other kinds of employment discrimination cases, but the EEOC does not have litigation authority to defend itself in a Freedom of Information Act challenge brought by a requester whose uh, FOIA request is denied. That is, there's no option for the EOC on that question. It would go to the Justice Department to defend. And as I said, I, my personal belief is that the Justice Department uh, will not defend it. And if they do, they'll lose. So. <laughs> and uh, Commissioner Dillon, let me, let me present the same question to you. Is that, what are your thoughts on the rationales that you've seen offered for these uh, points? Well, I haven't done a survey of EEOC employees on the, the subject of, um, you know, of the utility of arbitration agreements in labor and employment disputes. Um, I will say that, um, and, and I think it's really important to note, the EEOC itself is not bound by any of these arbitration agreements. Uh, the agency's authority to investigate charges of discrimination, to bring litigation, um, in federal courts is something that is separate and apart from any kind of agreement that an employee and an employer may have. And indeed, you know, if I think an employer attempted to circumvent um, the EEOC's authority by way of an arbitration agreement, I think that that would frankly constitute retaliation under Title VII. Um, and so that employer would be facing potentially not one charge of discrimination, but two. Um, so this this essentially, you know, employees have a non-waivable right to bring a charge um, with the EEOC and to participate in the EEOC's investigation. And likewise, as the Supreme Court Supreme Court held in 2002 in the Waffle House decision, the EEOC can um, pursue victim-specific relief on behalf of an employee, even if that, that employee um, is subject to an arbitration agreement. So the EEOC's equities um, in situations where arbitration agreements are at issue are completely protected um, by law, and that has been widely recognized. And uh, Eric, you, you touched a little bit on what employers uh, might do in response to challenge these practices. Um, could you, I mean, what, what are, let's say the employer gets a FOIA denial. 
Um, what are its options to challenge this practice in these circumstances? So the, the okay, so there there is an administrative process at the commission itself, um, and that's described on the commission's website in various kind of um, regulations and sub-regulatory guidance that are easily accessible to the public on the website. Uh, so the process generally is that the the requester will the person the person or entity requesting the information will will go to the EOC as directed in the guidance that the EOC makes available and, and make a request for say that the charge file the investigative file uh, and then then that will be denied if it's an arbitration related matter the, the person will get a letter their their internal administrative exhaustion appellate type processes at the EOC that person uh, requester should should and can exhaust. And once those are exhausted, then the Freedom of Information Act provides a, a cause of action to bring a lawsuit in federal court to challenge an agency, in this case, the EEOC's denial or request for information under the Freedom of Information Act. And then it's pending in a, before a federal district court judge and will be adjudicated as appropriate. And um, Commissioner Dell, I'm wondering, are there any other options employers or potential respondents might have to challenge this practice outside of maybe the litigation context? Um, well, I think one potential approach is to seek an opinion letter from the commission um, because, you know, ultimately this appears to involve at least as, to some extent interpreting um, the use of the word public and proceeding um, in Title VII, on which there is, um, I believe, you know, ample Supreme Court authority, as well as an interpretation of our own procedural regulations. Um, the EEOC actually has two forms of opinion letters. One is what's called an informal discussion letter. That is something that is uh, issued by staff. Um, and then there is a formal opinion letter, which is a document that is voted on by the full commission. Um, when I was chair, I resurrected the opinion letter uh, practice because I thought it was a very helpful way to provide um, guidance to stakeholders on discrete issues um, of interpretation. And this strikes me as well suited um, to the opinion letter format. Um, if someone is interested in doing it, there's on our website, there is um, kind of the process that one would go through to request such a letter. It's, it basically entails you email either our executive secretary or you email the commissioners, I would suggest all the commissioners, and just lay out what the question is um, and ask for an opinion letter to be issued. Now, um, you know, the ultimate decision on whether or not an opinion letter is going to be brought before the commission um, resides with the chair. Um, but I certainly think that this this type of issue is the type of thing that I think would lend itself well to the format of an opinion letter um, and clear up um, the confusion that seems to have arisen over um, the EEOC's role um, in responding to FOIA requests from respondents when the underlying dispute is subject to arbitration. Um, I think... Uh I wanted to, to, I guess, give you both an opportunity. I guess if you had any kind of final thoughts on this topic, whether it's uh, advice to potential respondents and employers or uh, thoughts on uh, just the EEOC's uh, rationales for this, this conduct or for this practice, rather. Um, Commissioner Diller, maybe turning to you first. 
Sure. Um, well, look, I understand that here in the year 2022, arbitration in the labor and employment context has become um, a um, somewhat heated issue, an emotional issue for many. Um, and I certainly, certainly understand that. Um, but I think that the way those kinds of issues get addressed is the way that we saw um, at least a portion of it be addressed earlier this year with the enactment of the, and I always have to read it, Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, which amended the Federal Arbitration Act um, to pull out of its coverage um, cases involving sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, that was a bill that received bipartisan support, and it was signed by President Biden. And it seems to me that when people have a policy preference about how arbitration is applied in the labor and employment context, the right way to address it is what we saw earlier this year, which is through the enactment of legislation. Whether or not you agree with um, that legislation, it is now the law of the land, and it's the obligation of all of us um, to enforce that. I think that, um, unfortunately, to the extent this practice is going on in the agency, that's not the way to express a particular policy preference concerning um, the utility of arbitration in the labor employment context. Um, I think our obligations, both as Senate-confirmed commissioners, but everyone at the EEOC, um, is to apply the law impartially as it's written. Um, Eric, uh, same same questions for you. I guess kind of your yeah. Let me. Do, I just want to add a couple of points uh, to follow up on one point Commissioner Dillon made. Uh, I have not conducted a survey either of the uh, staff at the EEOC and their particular views on arbitration. So, um, my uh, so I'm commenting based on anecdotal experiences that I had when I served at the EEOC and what I have seen. Uh, in private practice or in otherwise in public service since I served there in terms of a general negative view of arbitration. Not every single EEOC employee despises arbitration in the manner that I've described, and some recognize that the Federal Arbitration Act exists and that it is, uh, as Commissioner Dillon would say, the law of the land, and, and that the Supreme Court has interpreted uh, the Federal Arbitration Act to extend to uh, pre-dispute arbitration agreements and enforcement of those agreements in a manner consistent with, with um, as relevant here, would make production of these charge files uh, available under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, I agree with Commissioner Dillon that uh, the way to address these kinds of issues is either through the Congress of the United States to change the course. If the Congress wants to amend further the Federal Arbitration Act, it can certainly do that. It has the authority to do that, and, it's, and it did that uh, recently within the context of sex discrimination and sexual assault claims. Congress has not done that with respect to any other claim uh, at all, number one. And number two, even the, the, the new law about pulling out from the Federal Arbitration Act um, sexual assault and sex discrimination claims from arbitration doesn't change the FOIA calculation at all. Now, it does change the fact that these matters may not end up in arbitration, um, but it doesn't change the calculus under FOIA, under the Freedom of Information Act, and doesn't authorize the EOC to withhold uh, information that the Freedom of Information Act commands that the EOC produce. Um, so maybe with that, I'll turn it back to you, Chris. Thanks. Well, I I just wanted to, to uh, note, I guess, a some final uh, or some statistics 
uh, to put all of this in context. And that is that uh, according to a study in 2018, uh, over 50% of employers are now using employment arbitration agreements. Uh, and when you look at employers with a thousand or more employees, uh, that number increases to 65% are now using employment arbitration. So it will appear that this issue will be right in, uh, increasingly uh, presented for employers as more and more of them use employment arbitration. Uh, so I'm very grateful for Commissioner Dillon and for uh, Eric uh, joining us today to discuss these issues. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time and, and sharing your experiences and expertise. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. I think we are concluded with our telephone today. Uh, so thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.